Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Sideload, the technology podcast from Edelman London. I'm Sarah Claver, and we're talking today about fake news, misinformation, disinformation and the role that tech has to play in all of this. We've got highlights for you from a panel discussion with Shahab Farjami, the CEO of Storyful, a social media intelligence agency looking at social news monitoring and reputation risk management, as well as Edelman public affairs expert Will Walden, corporate affairs specialist Simon Patterson, and media strategy exec Joe Sheldon as moderator. Without further ado, let's jump in. Let's get straight to it. Um, Shav, if we could start with you. In terms of disinformation and fake news, what are the kind of tactics that you're beginning to see deployed against brands and businesses? So, um, thank you first, Joe, for inviting me. Appreciate it, even without the sleep. Um, I I think the first thing to say is the the point you raised in the intro, which is there is a difference between misinformation and disinformation, and fake news for that matter, but um, we're not allowed to use that term in my company, but but we'll use it for today. Um, Misinformation is is accidental, or or at least how we define it. It's, it's, It's an accidental occurrence. Um, and disinformation is intended. Disinformation has been around for a very long time and so has misinformation because it's essentially misunderstanding. Um, Where it's got complicated now is how the two overlap uh, into each other and those are the kind of tactics and trends that you see uh, prevalent against brands because whilst the two things are separate, there are people who are disinformers who can use misinformation as a thoroughfare, as a conduit um, or the misinformed um, for their for their propaganda or for their message, so the problem becomes um, when you've got these two camps: one understanding and intending, one not understanding and mistaking, and it's proliferated by polarisation or platforms or ecosystems or digital tools that just weren't around years ago. Um, so the kind of tactics and trends we see now, I think we'll probably get onto it in a bit more detail later when we talk about case studies. Um, but there are commercial intentions where people are trying to you know, make money for entities. There are political agendas. There are people just causing disruption just because they think it's amusing. Uh, there are some people doing it for notoriety. Uh, there are some people doing it for what they perceive to be a cause, uh, whatever that might be. And there are some people doing it for what they might believe to be um, I wouldn't say religious, uh, but theological reasons, and you get a lot around that as well. And a lot of that informs the political influence as well. So one example was the, um, I know we'll stay on brands, but you know, in the Irish uh, abortion referendum, the amount of misinformation and disinformation um, in Ireland, around about, from the studies that we did um, with The Economist, 86% of adverts that were seen on social media uh, in Ireland at the time were placed from outside of Ireland, which is not which is not ideal. So if you're a brand and you get caught up in polarised political views, you're, you're, you're kind of in all sorts, aren't you? Well, well I think the, the interesting thing and um, is, is actually that a lot of the most successful disinformation campaigns are simply utilising the best practice in communications and marketing uh, and the technology that's already available to them. So, so it's, not, it's not rocket science, it's something that already exists and we as communications professionals and marketers are, are wholly aware uh, as the tools at our, 
our, our fingertips. Um, but it's the, the deep understanding of their audiences and who they're trying to engage with which really allows them to create this, this bubble, these, these filter bubbles to have these conversations in these eco-chambers. Um, and, and certainly what, what I worry about is actually it's only a matter of time until it spills into the physical realm. So actually uh, you, you could use the Cambridge Analytica example that actually if you want to uh, generate a behaviour, an activity, whether that's not to vote or whether that is to vote, um, the quickest way of doing that is playing to already pre-established prejudices. And that's what we saw with the Internet Research Agency, so the, the Kremlin Troll Factory in St. Petersburg. Uh, and so actually these disinformation campaigns, whether it's anti-vaxxers or, or the far right, um, they're utilising these established prejudices to generate activity. Um, what do you do about it, to, to Joe's point? Um, well, well, it is about education and, and the understanding and, and getting the leading indicators as to something fermenting uh, in the deep web, on, on places like 4chan, etc., or other social platforms, um, is incredibly useful. But when it lands on your doorstep, what do you do? Um, and so one of the things certainly here at Edelman we're, we're developing is actually a, a program, a training program to actually um, try and understand how you build informational resilience uh, into your corporate brand uh, and actually as communicators how you actually then tackle that. Um, and I use the word tackle quite loosely because it's a series of prioritizations. It's about understanding the, the main intent or objective which this group is trying to have against you. If they're simply just trying to be a pain and be disruptive for some other message or position they're trying to create elsewhere, then in a lot of instances it might be a case of just disregard. And that's why that senior leadership engagement is important, because when the, the sort of clickbait-esque fake news uh, attaches to your brand, it's like a strobing light in the corner of the comms room. You know, no one can take their eye off it. All attention is drawn to it. And that's very much all the way up to the board level as well. Uh, and so having that confidence of your senior leaders to say, you know, in this instance, this isn't something worth muddying our hands with. Um, and it's understanding as well the expectation gap of your stakeholders. If uh, a dis uh, an organization is trying to have an effect against your customers, their trust, their loyalty, um, or, or trying to short stocks or your investment base, um, th then actually that is a problem. And how you engage with that isn't necessarily to go at it head on. There are reams of academic uh, data will, will tell you that by simply mentioning the problem in the first instance, you will just reinforce that message. The only thing people remember is that disinformation, not your counter two weeks post your, your press release. And so what do you do? It's difficult. Well, you can test. And certainly my experience of working um, combating uh, Daesh's narrative in the Middle East is actually to identify what it is your stakeholders actually want what they expect, what's within your gift to give, how that disinformation affects them, and engage with them in a meaningful way. And certainly our advice here would be to invest in your owned. Invest in your owned and your paid. Because people, and then channel that, and be smart with how you distribute that, because that will go to the media, the media will engage with those statements, your story, your narrative, use your social platforms. But it's absolutely essential that ahead of a crisis, or ahead of an issue like this, again, it's all about preparedness, ensuring you have that goodwill, that trust, with those audiences and that reach, that actually if you are going to rely on your own, which is the only thing, arguably, you actually control, then, then you're going to land an effect and you can counter by contesting. Um, the real challenge, and I'd just love to, to ask you, Shah, about this, is that this is all well and good with text. Imagery, video that has been forged or changed, 
You know, what, what's, what, how, how do you deal with that? Because I don't think most people will be set up for, for you know, forensic yeah. visual analysis. It's incredible, some of the, the, the video that, you know, you've probably seen Obama, the Obama video, when it wasn't actually him speaking. And just on that, the, the video um, um, change content, however you want to describe it, um, and politicians and um, individuals being manipulated in this is the single, currently the single biggest thing that's occupying Whitehall minds in terms of how they would cope with that on a global scale. So, difficult. But deep fakes, which is what, what you're referring to, is... First off, deep fakes are very much in their infancy. The problem with that is deep fakes are going to get really good. But right now, no one needs to worry too much. I might eat my words, but from a video perspective, there are very few that are brilliant because they're incredibly expensive and they take a lot of work. So the tech that we develop is equally quite expensive and it takes a lot of work to kind of get it into a state where you can spot definitively a really good deep fake. There just aren't many examples. Deep fake images are a problem. So doctoring a, uh, a photo or a front page, whatever it might be, is particularly, particularly difficult. And that's where tech overlays come in. And again, back to, to, to the platforms, one of the issues, so we, we've had this with a few brands um, who I can't talk about because it's, it's under NDA, but essentially images were distributed of them on front pages that were real front pages, but things had been changed, things had been tweaked to the extent that, you know, Let's say it was a political example. You sat in front of a US flag versus you sat in front of an ISIS flag are two very different messages, right? So you think about you know, a corporate version of that or you know, you, if, if you work for Pepsi holding a can of Coke, blah, blah, blah. Um, when images and videos are uploaded to 99.9% .9 of digital platforms or forums, any of the big ones, the small ones, the fringe, whatever, um, most metadata is removed and therefore you don't have any of the sort of the core components to identify the algorithms within that, that makeup. So you have to use things like overlay technology and so on and so forth that, that can map against it. And that's pretty good. Like, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're there or thereabouts on it. The problem is, um, if everyone has seen that and it's, it's fed a confirmation bias about a brand or about a C-suite or, or a campaign, that group are probably not going to then unsee it when you know someone comes out and says, "Oh, well, that wasn't real," and, and you know, and certain media aren't going to publish that it wasn't real. Um, so, so it is it it, it is tricky, um, and it's going to get much worse. Uh, imagery, yeah. relatively, yeah. Um, it's hard to get really good, to be honest. Um, front pages are probably the the, the most successful to date. Um, what, tweaking, me, tweaking a front page, yeah. Um, that that gets done a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sideload. Before we go, let's take a quick listen back to the last episode of Sideload, where we discussed trust in tech with Margot Edelman. A lot of financial services firms have tried to rebrand themselves as tech. Um, and I think a lot of times it's almost like tech washing a little bit in the sense that if they can brand themselves as a technology company, it's like, oh no, we're not actually just managing people's money. We're you know creating innovations that do good for the world, et cetera. Um, what I would say is that I think it needs to be more than just a perception thing. It needs to be more than just PR. If all it is is just kind of changing around the way you're pitching a company, but you're not changing the business, I think that can only go so far. I think people see through that.